Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. It's Wednesday, October 13th, 2021, and today on the Roundup, we're going to be covering three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the past seven days. Some of these questions are going to go in depth into a variety of articles we've seen coming out around a certain theme. Some of them are one-off articles that really uh, pose very significant questions, and others are reflective of what's going on in our industry and how we are responding in this pandemic, post-pandemic world we're entering into. So before we get started with the analysis and each of these questions, I do want to start by sharing a special hello to those who are joining us for the first time here on our live chat on Wednesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Eastern on our Facebook page for SMIE Consulting. For those that are watching on repeat, either on our YouTube channel or our Facebook page, and those that make time to download us and listen on, pod, on our audio-only podcast version of the Roundup. Thank you for making us a part of your weekly international edification. We take our three questions we focus on each week on the Roundup from our newsletter that comes out on Monday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern. That newsletter, all the SMIE news fit to share, comes out Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern time and covers a range of social media and international education news items. And we combine those in the course of the of Monday and Tuesday to come up with our three questions for the day and go next level in terms of what these three questions might mean for our industry in international education. Dropping the link to the most recent week's edition of the newsletter uh, that you can, you can feel free to uh, follow along as we go through some of our stories today. But you can also uh, get and subscribe to the newsletter and all of our past archive editions at smieconsulting.org slash subscribe. So we hope to uh, go a little bit in depth into these three questions today. And as you see uh, on our screen, uh, we have these three questions laid out for you. Let's get right into it with question number one. How do you make sense of the ed tech explosion in international education? Second, what is the role of an SIO on campus these days? And third, how will Australia respond post-pandemic? One of the things we like to do at SMIE is couch everything in terms of what we do, not just here in the United States, but from a global perspective. And obviously, being in international education, there's no shortage of uh, folks out there that are looking to help our institutions uh, achieve success in international education. Uh, the pandemic has obviously affected everybody on enormous levels, some positively, some negatively, but has certainly changed, for lack of a better phrase, the way we do things in international education. And the first topic today, how do you make sense of the ed tech explosion, is something that I've been, I've been dealing with, uh, certainly on the consulting side. I get to see a lot of this coming, uh, coming from uh, kind of a third party perspective, not an institutional one, not a service provider one, directly to working with students, that I can see some of the, these trends developing and probably going back four or five years. I, I'm part of a, a consulting group called GLG and we get consulting calls every once in a while uh, in our area of expertise. And there, have, there had to have been a period of about two or three years uh, where every month there would be a different consult call with an investment uh, VC capitalist or an investment group that is looking to invest in a certain international education technology, particularly around student search, uh, applications to institutions, student engagement, 
And those kept piling up, and it certainly seemed like at the time, four or five years ago, that there was something big coming. And a lot of money has been uh, thrown at these uh, new, new ventures that are trying to distinguish themselves in a very crowded marketplace, an increasingly crowded marketplace in terms of service providers trying to better connect students with universities and better enroll students through that application and admissions process. And it's not just unique to the United States. Uh, some of these providers are Euro uh, mainland Europe-based, some are UK-based, some are truly global uh, that have been coming onto the scene in the past uh, four or five years that have really started to change that dynamic. Uh, certainly I knew before I left the university side that uh, back in uh, my, uh, before I joined Education USA in 2008, uh, being on the institutional side for 15 years before that, I realized that the game was changing. It had already changed once or twice in that time in my first 15 years in the business. And what I saw is the increasing commercialization of international education. Any uh, first-time uh, first attendee at NAFSA certainly saw that whenever they entered the exhibit hall back in the noughties. You saw hundreds of vendors and countries and companies that are trying to help uh, connect students with universities around the world. And uh, that's something that uh, it became a, a reality of life, frankly, that as institutions, we couldn't do all that we needed to do internationally without, the, without help. Uh, and that certainly was happening in the early 2000s, but certainly since 2015 or so, we've just seen the number of service providers in the ed tech space that have uh, developed tools to help better connect students with institutions and help in that process of uh, either researching, uh, refining searches, uh, applying to institutions, uh, converting uh, applicants into enrolled students. At all points during the admissions funnel, we have vendors that have been popping up, service providers, uh, that are now helping universities bring in students and hopefully the right students for their institutions. And there are, it's, it's a very crowded field, as I said, and there's three articles that I'll be popping in to the, into the comments section here on the Facebook page. First one is from the Pi News, and the Pi has been, uh, I've said it many times, one of my favorite sources of uh, international ed news in the world uh, because it's, it's free and open and you don't have to have a, a $200 subscription to see articles from Times Higher Ed or services like that. You really uh, can get... Some of the news articles that they do are very good. Uh, I really appreciate those. But we've increasingly seen, much like we've seen these rise in, uh, rise in uh, providers, service providers uh, for on the EdTech side, you also see the rise of some of these uh, sponsored articles that uh, the folks at Pi News helped obviously sustain them and sustain their activities, and they do some fantastic uh, events throughout the year. The Pi, Pi Live events are fantastic. I really recommend those. Uh, particularly since COVID, they've been one of the better uh, ways to get what's coming and what's up, what's happening uh, on campus and, and in the in the ed tech space. Uh, but they've uh, been doing a lot recently, and I comment on that on some of these in the uh, in my newsletter this week. But uh, they have sponsored articles where uh, some of them are, are news stories, real, realistic news news stories, uh, where you have uh, partnerships between. 
uh, two groups like Keystone on the student search side and UniQuest this past week, uh, a UK-based service provider that's a digital marketing engagement service for institutions to uh, help uh, recruit and convert those students. Uh, there, there's also the Unibuddy and Study Portals partnership. Uh, some are uh, acquisitions like the Keystone acquisition of Uniquest. Some are partnerships as between Unibuddy and Study Portals, the Dutch company uh, that is uh, Keystone is a Norwegian-based company, uh, obviously mainland Europe, uh, that have partnered with UK. Uh, Unibuddy is a UK-based uh, company as well. Uh, so those are some that are really, uh, get, we're getting to a point where I think the, pl the, uh, the, the platforms that are out there now, there's so many. At some point, there's going to be a survival of the fittest going on. Some of it's going to be acquisitions. Some of it's going to be partnerships. Some of it's going to be mergers, whatever it might be. But you, you do see uh, the ideal service provider, frankly, uh, for an, from an institutional perspective, is one that can help students full full admissions funnel, right? Not only helping generate leads at the top end of the process, helping convert those leads into applicants and those applicants into admitted students and admitted students into enrolled. And those are the points in the admissions process that there are a number of vendors out there that have specialties in one or two of those areas. Some are marketing themselves, particularly with these new combinations, to become uh, kind of the Uber providers uh, that can help full, full, full service throughout the admissions process. Some of the bigger players, older players in the market, we, we saw two or three years ago, IDP purchased hot courses, and now we have IDP Connect that serves the, the higher ed community, and IDP that services directly the student community. And they are trying to become uh, IDP with its agent network, uh, and then IDP Connect with the student lead generation, and then some of the services they're trying to build in are we're kind of forerunners of a lot of what we're seeing now with some of these ed tech mergers. But we see a lot happening, and a lot will continue to happen. But one, one in particular uh, was a recent webinar uh, that the Pi hosted uh, where you had Keystone, you had um, THE student, uh, Times Higher Ed student, you had Leverage.edu in, Leverage in India, Jake Foster from AECC, and uh, someone from Study Portals, CEO of uh, uh, from, from study portals and someone from the institutional side. Uh, so a lot of the bigger ed tech players out there, not all of them, but uh, a very large uh, group of, uh, of folks in on that, uh, talking about how many of these groups, uh, Keystone study portals in particular, ha that had originally been lead gen sourcing and were just uh, uh, lead, uh, lead source providers for universities are now realizing they need to focus on downstream activity too and focus on the conversion aspects. So there's another webinar on that uh, this week too where you had uh, folks um, also, also talking about uh, their benefits from EDUCO working with U.S. and U.K. universities on how they help on the conversion side. So there's a lot of these, uh, lot of these tools out here that are very useful uh, and can be kind of be, be bewildering to try and get, put your head around because there's so many of them. And for, particularly for startups that are just joining the, joining the, 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 the race, uh, it's hard to get any traction if you don't have key institutional partners that you've already brought on board or are helping to develop. So I think what's uh, what's happening in the space is it's we're still clearly 
I think we may have reached the, the tip of uh, expansion mode and are now fully focused on really um, consolidation. I think that we're moving into that phase of uh, international ed tech uh, groups and uh, service providers just because uh, they can't all make it. Uh, and uh, there's just a, too many out there for, some are very niche in maybe particular countries that you might want to help. If you have a particular focus for your university, you might want to focus on so, some of those. But uh, for, if you're looking for uh, your best bang for your buck, for a lack of a better phrase, and to help broaden your, the scope of your institution's reach, some of these larger providers that are consolidating now with other, other, other providers that have other aspects to their business that might be uh, that might be better serving your uh, your intended uh, institutional goals in countries and, and markets, then you're certainly going to have a lot of choices. So uh, certainly I, I encourage you all to tread lightly when you're making those decisions. Certainly get the recommendations of from other universities that are currently using them to find out what their experiences have been and hopefully get the truth from what the implementation challenges might have been. Same things you've experienced when you've tried to implement that CRM that you've been dreaming of for years. When you finally get it and you realize it's a much longer process than you had initially hoped hoped it would be, uh, there are all those kind of growing pains that you want to know uh, as, and prepare for as much as you can in advance to, uh, to help your teams kind of get the most of the time and set their expectations accordingly uh, for um, for for what what they really what really is the goal of, of taking up these uh, these new relationships with service providers, so from all of them from uh, this uh, webinar that on technology can recruit harder for you that was the theme of it, uh, student search platforms are attempting to be the answer for you, uh, so some of these are 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 a little bit over the top. Uh, claims, uh, and frankly, what they can do and what they can't do. Uh, some are, are, are practical solutions, true, but uh, finding the truth in there is, is the real rub of the issue. Uh, we'll talk about uh, some, of the, some of the other concerns in, in weeks to come as, we, as some, of this, some of these conversations develop further and uh, acquisitions happen and don't happen and uh, what's, where the good fits might be, and uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that uh, in uh, weeks to come for certain. But I uh, wanted to throw the, these, uh, these articles in there for you, particularly about Unibuddy and their merger, or not merger, but uh, partnership with Study Portals uh, for Keystone and their partnership or acquisition of UniQuest. Uh, some really interesting uh, combinations that are occurring now, and we'll see where, uh, where those lead in terms of if they develop into uh, kind of game changers for a lot of institutions. And that's going to be a, a phrase that we've heard, we'll hear regularly in any, almost every webinar you go to, every article about one of these mergers or partnerships, uh, that they're game changers. Uh, that will, uh, remains to be seen in most all these cases, but we'll certainly keep our, our finger on the pulse when it comes to that kind of change and how it impacts what you do in your offices. Next question of the day is, what is the role of an SIO on campus these days? Now, much like international education itself and the service providers that exist out in the market for institutions to take advantage of uh, or be taken advantage of, uh, there are a number out there. Uh, uh, one issue that certainly has changed almost as much, but maybe not quite as much because there's only a few different variations this can have on campus, is an SIO, a senior international officer, what is their role on campus these days? Um, certainly back in the, in the late 90s and early noughties, uh, an SIO generally 
this was just as just coming into fashion as something campuses need to needed to have. It tended to be a senior academic uh, on campus, a faculty member, a dean that had uh, helped establish uh, faculty exchange programs, study abroad programs, that type of thing. Usually, those folks did not have um, perhaps the direct involvement on the recruitment side uh, to, uh, to really was a driving force of why they were chosen as an SIL. Typically, it goes to a faculty. Uh, I remember going to a number of AIEA conferences in, for senior international educators um, in, in the U.S. over the years and realizing the, new, the folks that were coming in new oftentimes were uh, faculty in their, at their institutions that had done some study abroad programs but really had never had a, that kind of an administrative role to manage study abroad programs, to manage the student enrollments uh, or uh, have uh, international student enrollment, student services as part of their responsibilities. So a lot of those folks were uh, even, because uh, they're senior in, 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 international officers, uh, at those conferences, they were typically very much deer in the headlights because they hadn't heard all the, all the, all the various issues and content that was available to them as an SIL that they needed to be aware of and, and make use of as they were uh, seeking to uh, put together their own campuses' international plans. So the, the article I'm referring to today is from Inted, uh, our good, good friends at Inted. Uh, they uh, put out regular content for, for the higher ed folks that uh, I think is well worth reading. Uh, they, uh, this, this particular one, it's Ben Waxman, the CEO of Inted, uh, with uh, uh, co-writing an article with Brad Farnsworth. Uh, for those that have been in the Higher Ed Association game for a while, Brad used to be at ACE and was kind of their senior international officer uh, for the American Council of, uh, on Education. Uh, he ha now has uh, his own advisory group uh, that uh, helps institutions develop uh, and ex execute international strategy. So. His, uh, Brad's experience, uh, having helped institutions do this when he was at ACE and now doing that for his, uh, in his consulting work, really uh, shares, I think, uh, some of the comments and, uh, that we're seeing in, in terms of how the dynamic has changed uh, on, in the landscape of international education. But specifically what Brad, Brad talks about is uh, on campus how an SIO now uh, in the past, you had to have that PhD if you wanted to be an SIO. Uh, while that is still largely going to be the case, um, PhD, EDD, whatever you want to call it, uh, whatever doctorate you needed, you typically needed to have that behind your name if you were going to be a, an SIO, and because it, it is a senior position, and frankly, at institutions, that's an expectation that senior folks would have that doctorate. Um, but what's uh, what Brad takes on uh, with, in this article is really reflecting some of the, frankly, different perspectives SIOs should be taking when it comes to international education. It might seem, as he puts in the article, counterintuitive. And the three that he, rec he, he has for recommendations for SIOs are, one, lead on the review. And he's talking here about reviewing your existing international programs, uh, who your relationships are, are with overseas, that uh, efficiencies and effectiveness and revenue models and all of that, that as an SIO, you should be the one to be proactive uh, to take the lead and do, an, do your own internal review on this because it's much better to be, to be shown to take the initiative than to wait for your president or provost to uh, ask you for it. Uh, so this is something that 
the relationships that as an SIO you have with your president, with your uh, budget office, uh, uh, VP for finance, whoever it might be, uh, those are ones that have to be managed carefully because uh, we, we talked about it last week when we were talking about strategic plans. That strategic plans, one of the obvious failures of most strategic plans is when your budget becomes your plan, not the mission that you had set out initially to drive the institution forward on. Uh, I'm happy to be working with an institution now that has never had an international uh, plan for its institution and within a very short order of time they put together the building blocks of a very strong steering committee that involved many facets of or the most relevant facets of the institution for uh, planning enrollment, enrollment growth, student services, as well as study abroad and partnership development uh, that uh, really understood that this is going to be something that needs top level support but also needs uh, you need to build up from the bottom in terms of the staffing that you're going to need and looking looking at a 10-year perspective on, how, on what was going to be needed to get there. Um, the, uh, the need for a lot of the steps that are going to be taken uh, and the, putting that mission first makes all the difference because it's driving other decisions uh, that in order to get to our 10-year goal we need to do X, Y, and Z on the front end. Some of it will be financial, some of it will be um, programmatic, some of it will be change of culture. And that's something that if, if as an SIO you have that support, you're taking the lead on, on the review to help show why you need that support. Uh, this is something that makes uh, just pure sense uh, because you have to show leadership uh, in these kinds of relationships. Because when it comes to international, as an SAO, you're the, you're the knowledge expert. Uh, you're the, um, you, you know your stuff and you need to show that you know your stuff when you're going to be taking, uh, taking on responsibilities or being asked to. Uh, rather, you should be leading on the review rather than waiting to be asked. So that's, that's his first, first piece and a lot of great free resources to help folks get started on that as SIOs. Uh, next is his advice to look inward first. And this is important, I think, because when you make the, as an SIO, you want to have a sense of what, 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 are, what are our pluses and our minuses as an institution. Uh, what do we have, not just with the review piece when you're looking at budgetary impact and partnerships and uh, processes for that, uh, you also want to know where are your campus's strengths on international, uh, on where, uh, you, where your students are from, where they're going, uh, what uh, they come here for, what programs are you best known for. Cataloging those is something that is absolutely key for an SIO to have that knowledge of what they are good at. Um, that Find those connections, as Brad says, between institutional goals and international opportunities. And that is to, meant to create that sense of community, that they're doing the same thing, they're on the same page, that you're creating processes that is listening, more listening than talking. Uh, when it comes to gathering that internal impact, uh, internal feedback. And the third piece is building new connections uh, as his recommendations. And uh, connections within your institution is important because one of those things that I've seen certainly in international education over the past 25 years uh, is how few institutions really pay attention to that international student turning into international alumni and the, how that can be leveraged throughout uh, on a number of different levels, but particularly on the recruitment side. Uh, because uh, funding of 
donating to your alma mater isn't a really a known thing outside of the United States and maybe the UK a little bit. That that culture has to be established, and uh, but there there's other ways that can be done, uh, particularly if they're helping with recruitment and uh, recognizing that and including them in the process. So a lot of positives here, building new connections on campus. So one of those that Brad mentions is with advancement alumni, uh, that he that you take the time to help those folks know if they've got a particular fundraising goal uh, by top management and helping them get there if it's. Um, that is so, so it's changing it from more of a transactional approach to these kind of offices to more of a relational approach. So uh, you really want to become, as an SIO, the, as Brad points out, uh, a, the kind of leader that is not a transactional one, that is, um, is, is really a, a relational one that you're, you have to understand all parts of your university, not just your own, own shop. Because uh, too often, campuses get sick, siloed when it comes to different parts of the student experience. And as a result, there are, there are good things that happen in a in number of places that other folks need to know in other areas, but they don't. So it's a way to, as a SIO to get to know your institution much on a much broader level than you're used to. Uh, or would think you would need to be, but I have an understanding of how the greater greater whole functions and understanding how you can use your uh, knowledge and influence at the institution to help grow that, uh, grow the institution as a whole, not just in your own area. So great article there within Ted and, and Brad Farnsworth, uh, formerly of ACE. Uh, the final question of the day, number three, how will Australia respond post-pandemic? And I cover, oftentimes on the Roundup, I cover other countries' approaches to international education to lend a sense of perspective, really, on uh, how other countries are dealing with uh, various issues. And certainly, Australia, New Zealand, China, for, uh, to, in all ex for all ex intents and purposes, have largely remained closed to international students, either returning from, uh, from a break between studies or beginning their studies, have largely remained closed to international students since Feb late February, early March of 2020. And the impact that's having and has had on their countries, uh, higher education systems, on their econo economies, uh, which have, have become so dependent on uh, higher education as, a, as part of their uh, revenue for, for an, as a country, institutionally and as a country, uh, there have um, there have been real challenges in terms of how what higher ed will look like moving forward. We've seen in Australia and New Zealand uh, these study centers set up in third-party countries uh, to allow students that uh, were hoping to uh, to come to their countries to their universities to study remotely, but with a cohort of other students in similar situation that still want to come physically but can't yet because of um, border issues. So that, uh, there's been, certainly been a lot of effects of the pandemic on institutional life uh, in these countries. Uh, we've seen Australia and New Zealand uh, lose uh, significant jobs. Um, we in, at the, as a result, about six months ago, uh, we got some stats from Australia, the US and New Zealand, that Australia, of their 40 institutions, there, were, there was a loss of, a, of an average of 432 jobs on each campus uh, of those 40 campuses, 432 jobs per campus. The U.S. average with 650,000 job losses on campus, uh, 4,500 4, of those were, uh, were, were 
were or at 4,500 institutions. Our average is about 144 jobs lost per institution. New Zealand has only eight institutions. They lost 700 jobs, an average of about 87.5. Um, what is important about Australia is as they're looking to come out of the pandemic, what they're seeing is a lot of their institutions that saw job cuts, the heaviest job cuts, uh, oftentimes international education offices, particularly admissions, lower level staff, sometimes senior staff that were uh, sucking up a big portion of their budgets uh, were the ones who were let go or had to change careers. And that's, uh, or change track at universities that they were already working at and found them something else to do. Uh, and that's, moving forward, is gonna, be, uh, is gonna be interesting to see if those jobs are recreated on campus uh, in Australia or if those are going to be ongoing concerns. Uh, because what's interesting about Australia right now, uh, the two articles I'm sh referencing are uh, one from the PI uh, called International Education Staff Redundancies a Concern in Australia. And the second one is experts weigh in on Australia's 10-year strategy at the Australia International Education Conference. Uh, that just concluded uh, in the last couple of weeks um, where the government has announced in Australia that they're gonna be uh, having their next 10-year strategy uh, available for public review by the end of the calendar year, so within the next three months. So interesting to see where that goes and what how some of the issues that have uh, popped up since the pandemic began are, are reflected in these new changes that the Australian government has come, has come in with or will be coming in with. So to, to think that they have at least a, a government that cares enough to, to develop a plan and have a 10-year strategy, as a matter of fact, that they're launching, uh, I think that has to be in Australia, the UK, New Zealand. They probably feel comforted knowing that that's there. Um, certainly, we, t we don't have that luxury in the U U U.S. Uh, we, we wish we did. And we see some movement toward that with what happened this summer with the uh, joint statement on, in support of international education between uh, departments of state, commerce, um, homeland security, and education. That's signs of hope, but we haven't seen the progress yet on that. Uh, we'll keep our fingers crossed on it. But in Australia, they've got a 10-year plan to look forward to, and they'll be having a lot of uh, feedback and internal discussions about that in the coming months as to what that might look like for Australia. But for, for the institutions themselves, clearly there has to be an, a working relationship with the government uh, because of border control issues, because of funding issues, uh, because of regulation, regulatory issues that the government puts in place to either hinder or allow for a greater flow of students to, to happen. So we'll see where that goes, and we'll certainly keep you posted on what uh, the future looks like down under when it comes to international education as the details become revealed. So that's all we have for you this time on the October 13th edition of the Midweek Roundup. Uh, we wish you the very best in the coming weeks and months as, uh, as you move into the holiday season here in the U.S., and we hope that uh, we can continue to be, good, be a good resource for you uh, in your international education work. So until next time, have a great day.